the muzzleloaders.com podcast, your source for all things muzzleloading. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Muzzleloaders podcast. Uh, I'm very excited to be sitting down with Gary Lewis today. Um, Gary has been an author and outdoorsman, uh, TV show, all the whole nine yards. So really excited to be able to sit down and uh, chat with him about some hunting, um, specifically muzzleloader hunting. Gary is uh, an avid muzzleloader hunter, has built lots of kits and everything like that. So, uh, Gary, how's it going today? It's going good. I'm glad we made this work, Darren. Me too. I'm excited that we were able to, you know, sit down. I've been wanting to sit down with you for a long time, and it it just worked out today. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Next time I'll come to the I'll come to the store. Heck yeah, yeah. You're welcome anytime. Yeah. We'd love to have you down here. So, <laughs> um, so the first thing I kind of want to talk about is just a little bit of your backstory, um, your background in the outdoor industry. How long have you been involved that way? Uh, you know, what is, what are, what does that look like for you? Well, back in 1997, I got my dream job and I went to work for Nosler mm-hmm. and I, it was everything I hoped it would be. I wouldn't get, I wouldn't get in political arguments with people at work. And, you know, when we talked about stuff on their breaks, you know, we were talking about hunting and fishing and it was awesome. Mm-hmm. And from then I, I was kind of a fledgling outdoor writer at the time, writing a newspaper column and, and getting some articles published in some regional magazines. And, and, but I was on track to be a full-time outdoor writer. And so that's what I've managed to accomplish. I've been a full-time outdoor writer since 2002. Mm-hmm. And when I felt like I was getting, maybe hitting my stride, getting a little bit bored, I started a television show with a friend and man, I haven't been bored since. <laughs> <laughs> so do you do all the filming and editing yourself or do you have a crew of guys that does that for you? I have been fortunate to have people who know how to turn the cameras on and I stand in front of them. There you go. <laughs> sometimes run in front of them and sometimes ride horses in front of them. But, you know, I, I don't do any of the filming or editing. Okay. Got it. Yeah. It's, that's a lot of work. I mean, you figure, you know, the filming and editing, especially for a TV show, that's a huge undertaking. So. Yeah. And I've worked with some great people and continue to work with some great people that just know how to accomplish the task and I don't have to do it. Awesome. Yeah. And so if somebody did want to get like, as a kid, like I always dreamed of being a professional hunter and like doing the things that you do. Um, if any of our listeners are interested in doing some sort of thing, like you, you made that dream a reality. How do you go about doing that? I mean, do you just put yourself out there or is it more, uh, methodical than that? Okay. So my, um, quick, quick advice for somebody is don't wait till tomorrow start today mm-hmm. and just go for it don't be afraid if you want to be the expert in something then work at that mm. and um, I'm kind of a generalist I love fishing all aspects of fishing and almost all aspects of hunting and I try to cover all of that on the television show and write about it all too. But there's so much room for somebody to pursue their passion, whether it's just one little discipline, one narrow focus, or to be generalist like I am. But um, I worked 
three full-time careers simultaneously. So if you can picture that, working yeah. three full-time careers simultaneously, that's what I did to get to the point where I could quit two of those careers and work on this full-time mm-hmm. since then. Wow, that's a lot That's a lot of work. And I think that's something people probably don't think about is they want to they want their dreams to be easy to achieve, you know, and it, they never are. There's always a ton of work involved whenever you have to want to do something you love. So I remember the moment when I decided I was going to be a writer and I, I was listening to a book on tape. I was working in a cubicle in an office in downtown Portland on Broadway. I threw that book all the way across the office because it was so, it was such a piece of garbage and this is a well-known um, novelist mm-hmm. and I thought if that guy can make a living writing I can do it too <laughs> but but that was 10 years mm-hmm. and I still see that guy's name on the bestseller list I don't know how he gets there but um, I that was 10 years from that moment to when I was a full-time writer mm. so and that was working hard um, yeah I didn't watch any, I didn't have any favorite TV shows. <laughs> yeah. I just worked, worked, worked. And so at one point writing 180 articles a year, one book a year, 52 radio um, shows a year, and, and, and then um, 13 TV episodes a year. One year I did 30 some television episodes in a single year. You don't, you don't stop working. There's one outdoor writer that might be a harder working guy than me. And he's, he actually lives here in the same state, but, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> Scott Haugen, I, I think maybe Scott's a harder working outdoor writer than me, but <laughs> you got to brag on the Oregonians. It's a close race. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and I guess you're from central Oregon. Is that right? Are you born and raised there or did you move here? I moved to central Oregon in 1994. Okay. Got it. And where did you move from? Oregon City, and prior to that, I'd lived in Southwest Washington. Grew up in Kalama, Washington, and Vancouver, and and uh, just loved fishing and and then hunting. You know, as I became a hunter. Awesome. And and how did that start for you? So like it, you know, for me, when before I was twelve years old, I would just dream of the day that I would be old enough to hunt. And you know, you pass your hunter safety, you get involved, you start hunting. Um, what did that look like with you? How does your hunting journey begin? Well, my hunting journey began when dad, grandpa took me hunting when I was a little kid and I was just tagging along. And then when dad quit hunting, when I was nine, he just, he came home from a duck hunt and he says, I am done hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, I am done with that. And I thought, well, man, well, what about, what about little Gary here? You know, yeah. nine years old. I, I was just wanting to do this. And so when I was 14, I got mom and dad to take me to hunter's education mm-hmm. class. And from there I, I was a hunter and, and not a successful one. And it just, you know, a season would go by and the next season, I'm just not being successful at it. But I, you know, along the way I realized, wow, I love this. Yeah. And I think that's really what drives then, is just the love yeah, of this, hunting, you know? That's right. Yeah. And then as I realized I loved it, then I didn't worry about the success as much anymore. Mm-hmm. And then 
it began to happen for me, you know. Yeah, and I mean, they say that every, you know, once every 10 years is when somebody's going to fill a tag on average, and that's just crazy, you know, and I, I'm honestly like in the same boat as you when I started hunting is just, you know, you don't see a whole lot of success because you're learning, but it's when you love yeah. hunting that you just pursue it, and then the success comes with time. You know, you're going to find people that will guide you. You're going to find, you know. Yeah. And then you, as you grow, it's you're going to be able really to really important who you hang out with. It's true. Yeah. You know, that's going to define where you get to in your hunting success. Exactly. Yeah. I, whenever I hang out, whenever I choose people to hang out with, I try to never be the smartest one in the room because then I'm never yeah. growing. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to hang out with people that are better at hunting than I am. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so I guess you're in central Oregon. Are you getting hit by those fires at all or are they uh, away from your place? Yeah. The, we're just two miles away from the camp where all the fires fighters are staged at. Oh man. So yeah, they're, they're here. They're, it's happening real close to us. Got it. Are you guys on standby or is, you know, they think you're gonna be all no. right? Yeah, not my neighborhood. And I've cut down 199 trees here on my property in the last year mm-hmm. so um i'm in better shape than my neighbors i think for, you, you've been preparing <laughs> for this. Up the fire. <laughs> yeah well i'm glad to hear that i'm glad to hear that uh, i know that a bunch of people got evacuated i have a bunch of family in central oregon i was just there last oh, weekend yeah. so uh, i'm glad to hear that you're you're in good shape as far as that goes so yeah exactly um so and i guess as far as that goes uh let's kind of dive into the muzzleloading specific side of things um so we sent you guys. We sent you some kits. You know, you've got some kits from us. You've built those kits. We've seen them on. You know, if, if you guys have been following us on YouTube, I'm sure you've seen uh, Gary's kits, builds, and things like that. Um, what has been your experience building those kits? So, like, what are you gonna offer a piece of advice to somebody? Like, uh, if they're just thinking about getting into building muzzleloader kits, or if they, you know, just aren't sure, especially the traditional aspect of things, you know because some people are apprehensive about starting the traditional muzzleloading side of things, especially in Oregon, you know, when you have those restrictions. I, I kind of look at this more like a lifestyle than, than anything else. Mm -hmm. And when I built my first muzzleloader kit, it was to save a little bit of money Mm -hmm. and to learn a little bit about the process. And so the kit that I bought, this was when I was 22 or 23 years old. That was when I bought my first kit. It was one of these. Mm -hmm. And so it was a Kentucky rifle. It was a percussion. It was 50 caliber. And I thought, you know, I'd build it and maybe shoot targets with it, maybe take it hunting, but I didn't have a specific plan for it. I just wanted to do it. And, then I thought, okay, well, I'm not doing that again. Mm-hmm. And then time went by and I thought, you know, I want to do that again. Yeah. Because it was satisfying. And I thought, you know, there was some things that I could have done differently, spent a little bit more time on and mm-hmm. let's try that again. So I built another one. I bought another one of these in a percussion, uh-huh. built it again. And then this is the third of of the Kentucky rifle kits that I built, and this one has the the flint, mm-hmm. the flint lock, 
And I think I did a better job on this one than on the previous ones. And as I finished this one up, I thought, I'm going to be building more kits because (laughs) it's fun. And I learn quite a bit, but I wouldn't say this is an easy one. Mm -hmm. It's got, you know, these two pieces of wood and you have to join them and, and there's a lot of wood there to finish and, and, um, touch and reach. And, and so the, uh, the gun I wanted to show you is, is the one I just finished and it's right here. And this is a deer hunter kit and you guys carry these as well. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's put together. I wouldn't say it's finished yet. I'm going to take it apart and, and touch up a couple things, but I yeah. could go out and hunt with this today if I wanted to. I like it's, the dark finish you had, you put on that. It looks really good. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the walnut finish. I used the rusty walnut on that other one and, mm-hmm. and on previous kits. And so now I think I like the walnut finish better, but this gun here is going to hunt antelope next month. Oh man. Yeah. So I guess so how, do, how do you caliber. how do you hunt antelope with the muzzleloader here? Do you just hunt them on water, or because I mean, oftentimes, like I've personally never been closer than like three hundred yards when I'm actually out hunting them around. You know, my first antelope I killed on flat, flat ground in Wyoming, and it was forty yards. Oh man! And there wasn't you know even a bush to hide behind, and and they just. They just came to me, and I just stood there and let it happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, I got down on one knee yeah. and let it happen. And that's kind of the thing that'll, that'll happen when you are out there among the antelope. And so I've killed a bunch of antelope at under 100 yards and, and then also out to 400. And I like doing it close range. And so here, here in Oregon, hunting with a muzzleloader, I'll use a blind or I'll use natural cover mm-hmm. and then my own patience that I have taught myself over the years and wait near water or on a fence line. It doesn't have to be near water, but it, you know, it has to be on a route that they're going to take during the day. Yeah. And, um, I know that decoys are how a lot of people will hunt antelope too. Like we, you know, we used to sell those like big red moo cow decoys from Montana decoy that like you'll hide behind and I've heard they just get curious about that kind of thing, and they'll come right in. Have you ever tried that, or is it just more of been spot and stock? A friend of mine and I drew a tag the same year, and so we hunted together, and he built a moo cow decoy out of plywood, and he put three handles on it. Mm-hmm. And so one person could use it, but it was actually better if two people got behind it, so it was a big black Angus. Mm-hmm. And you could stand out there with that big black Angus plywood in front of you and the antelope would look and then they wouldn't get nervous unless that big black Angus started walking backwards because you just don't see that out there in the wild. But it only points one direction. Yeah. So we're trying to sneak up on this really big buck with a herd of, of does and, we got within, uh, I think, 310 yards, and I was going to lay down and shoot. This was the rifle. 
um, under the neck of this decoy. And they, when I looked next, they were booking it out of there. Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember getting so close to a jackrabbit that I could have grabbed it because it was just so certain that this was a big black Angus and, and that's how close I got to that jackrabbit. It was just a scream. And so, yeah, those, those big cow decoys that you talked about, those work and they're way lighter than a plywood cow. Interesting. But when I, on my last antelope hunt with the muzzleloader, I used an antelope decoy. And when I put that up, I spooked the antelope just right out of there. I mean, they left the country Hmm. when they saw that antelope decoy. And so I put that away, and the next day I put up a turkey decoy. Now, the reason that I used the turkey decoy, these, these antelope had never seen a turkey before, but they had seen lots of birds in their lifetime, and mm-hmm. I put this turkey right down at the water's edge, and when I saw this buck coming across the pan, he was probably 600 yards away, and he ran straight in, as soon as I had put the cap on the rifle, I saw this buck and he ran straight in and he starts angling down to the water and he sees this turkey decoy and he just puts on the brake. He's just looking at those, you know, that big bird, you know, what is that? Mm -hmm. But that was an 85 yard broadside opportunity. And I shot him and, and got him through the lungs with that 54 caliber ball. And, you know, on my hunt this season, I'm bringing the turkey decoy for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, you figure it knows it's a bird, so it's not spooked, but then it's like, what kind of bird is that? You know? So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> huh, yeah we cool. don't need to overthink it. You yeah. know, it's just put something there that's not going to spook them, but that m- m- might stop them in the yeah. spot where I need them to stop. And that's exactly the way it worked. That's super interesting. I actually, coming back from uh, Cove the other day, I saw crazy antelope that i'd never i never seen one like this before but the antler almost or the not the antler the horn came down almost like along its nose and like stuck out in the oh, front yeah. super weird yeah. i hadn't seen anything like that before but they're they're pretty cool yeah i, I love hunting them and, and you know i think i love hunting the desert more than anything else mm-hmm. hunting the desert for mule deer and and for antelope i, I just it just thrills me and yeah you know, I, but I pray for 80 degree days instead of a hundred degree days. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my wife is from, uh, the Burns area. And so we hunt, you know, we shed hunt out there a lot and all kinds of stuff. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be in the nineties if you go out there, you know, any later than May for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Super hot. But, um, so how long have you been muzzleloader hunting? Um, because you obviously, really like it if you're putting all the effort into muzzleloader hunting antelope. So what, what does that look like for you? I shot a big, big pig with a muzzleloader in 99. Mm. So I would say that's, you know, I, I hunted rabbits with a muzzleloader before mm-hmm. a muzzleloader pistol before that. But I would just say 99 was the year that I became a, a more serious muzzleloader hunter. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, 22 years. And I shot a huge pig 
don't even remember what rifle I used on that one. I think it was a 50 caliber though, and it was a side lock. Mm-hmm. But then I took an inline muzzle loader from Austin and Halleck mm-hmm. and I put a scope on it and I went to Africa and I ended up getting the, what was the world record for a muzzle loader for the red heart of beast at the time. Oh wow. It's still in the, it slipped back to, I think number four position now. And I got a kudu that's still in the record book with the muzzle loader and a blesbach. Mm. And the Blesbuck actually went pretty high in the muzzleloader record book too. And so I was really proud of those hunts. And when I came home, I just decided I'm going to hunt with a muzzleloader more. Mm-hmm. And now I, I feel like I'm hunting with a muzzleloader, you know, maybe 50% of the time when it's big game. Yeah. And I, I was a bow hunter for a long time. And I think those, skills learned as a bow hunter really, really translated to muzzleloading success. Yeah. Well, we talk a lot about archery hunting on this, on the podcast, because, um, I, you know, a lot of us here like to archery hunt and it's very similar, you know, it's both close range. Um, yep. oftentimes your muzzleloader seasons are going to be in the rut. Like I, I have a rut white tail muzzleloader hunt this year. And so there's just some, some things that translate and, uh, we love it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. But uh, I do want to hear more about Africa because um, I actually got to go to Africa. My dad and I went when I was in middle school, and we went on a hunt there, and that was super fun. They they always they always warn you like before you go, just know that you're gonna go back because it's just addicting, you know. Um, yeah. And the next trip that we take, it's my dream to shoot a Cape Buffalo with a muzzleloader, and so just mm. kind of and especially now with all the innovations in the inline muzzleloading stuff, I mean back in the day they were hunting them with side locks but that's uh that's definitely maybe a little too extreme i don't know (laughs) but uh what has been Mm -hmm. like you know how did you like africa what was it like to hunt africa with a muzzleloader because um a lot of our listeners do like that kind of stuff can i be open and real and tell you what i really did you absolutely can yes (laughs) okay i took this muzzleloading rifle 50 caliber. I took Nosler Sabos uh-huh. with the 45 um, handgun um, bullet in it, which was their premium, their, hand, their partition handgun bullet at the time. And because the country that I was going into wouldn't allow the, bringing in loose powder. I loaded the components that I needed inside of 12 gauge shells, Hmm. put them back in the 12 gauge box. And then I had 50 caliber bullets that matched the rifle so that the authorities in all their wisdom could look and say, okay, here's 50 caliber bullets, here's a 50 caliber rifle, here's a 12-gauge shotgun, here's 12-gauge ammunition. Mm -hmm. And that allowed me to get into the country with the components that I, if the components had been loose, that would not have been um, allowed. Interesting. And they would have been confiscated, and who knows what else might have happened at that point. So then I got to the field, 
I cut the shotgun ammo open, took out the components, put them in my possibles bag, and then went hunting. Hmm. Yeah, now, I'm not the first person to have done that, but yeah. it worked for me then. And now there's more opportunity in country to get the components that you need. Mm-hmm. If it's hard to bring them in, you can actually arrange with your professional hunter, you know, your pH to gather that stuff up for you in advance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not illegal. I mean, you, you assembled, it's not loose anymore, you know? So <laughs> See, th- that's right. That's right. Uh, and any one of those shotgun shells, if you had fired them, something would have come out. So mm-hmm. <laughs> but I had all those, those bullets stacked inside of those things. And oh yeah. It worked. It's good. Yeah. yeah worked out <laughs> um so one thing i didn't want to talk about too is uh we, we asked this question to a lot of people that are in, heavily involved in the muzzleloader community and um i just want to get your take like on where muzzleloading is as uh, where it's at as a whole right now because we're experiencing exponential growth like we've hardly seen before in the muzzleloader community um we've seen a lot of innovations uh we've also seen a huge push towards uh, you know, a lot of traditionalists and things like that. So I think in my personal opinion, I think it's doing really well, but I do want to get your take. Like, what do you think's going well? What do you think you'd like to see change? Things like that. Well, I think you guys are a leader in that because you, you're inclusive and that's what muzzle loading needs. And I, I've always seen muzzle loaders and black powder hunters as having that spirit of inclusiveness. You know, Mm. you show up at a rendezvous and they will let you walk around with them and shoot the rifles Mm. and, and be a part of the whole experience. And the carryover to the more modern muzzle loader side just seems very open as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you guys, could be considered a thought leader in that. And, and so I love the inclusiveness of the muzzleloading community. I think more so than if, you know, if we're going to divide up um, the archery community or the uh, mm-hmm. rifle, rifle hunters and your know, crossbows, for instance. But I, and, and the other thing is I have, I've hunted with several different inline, more modern style muzzle loaders, and then I find myself just gravitating to the traditional side. But that's just me. And mm-hmm. and as I look at what other people carry out in the field, the technology is really the is really similar. It's more the looks of the gun that. Mm-hmm. than anything else. And um, what I tell people when they look at one of these, these old style guns and and then try to picture themselves hunting with it, I Mm -hmm. say, don't be afraid to learn an old technology. Yeah. Yeah. So your, your ancestors hunted with this, Mm -hmm. your ancestors fought with these things and stake their lives on them and uh, you can too it's yeah it's really not hard well and there's real benefit in going back in time too 
you know, there's real benefit in getting away from modern technology, putting the phone down, you know, putting the scopes away. Let's just go back to the bare bones basics. What do you need? What is essential? And let's get it done with that. You know, I love, I love carrying these old heavy guns around, Yeah, you know, and then have a possible bag hanging over my um, shoulder. There's no feeling like it. It's, yeah. You just feel like you are back in time. For sure. Yeah, it's great. Um, and kind of shifting gears a little bit, um, I, you know, you'd mentioned how uh, you were working like 120 hours a week, you know, like three full-time jobs. Um, has that slowed down for you now? Like what is what does your average day look like as a writer, as a hunter, things like that? So you say 120 hours a week and, and what it really was, was I had three full-time careers. Mm. And so in one case I uh, was a salesman and I was exceedingly good at what I did. And so the company that I worked for gave me a lot of freedom because Mm. I was bringing in the business and, at the same time, I owned a collection agency and I had people working for me and I had to manage the collection agency. Mm-hmm. And then I was cranking out newspaper and magazine articles and writing books and doing book signings. And so I did have three legit full-time careers going simultaneously, but I had never had so much free time mm-hmm. at the same time. Interesting. And it was and I just would marvel, you know, I just remember driving off to Yellowstone and thinking, wow, I can do this because I've worked so hard. Mm. And, you know, I knew that when I came back, I would be working hard again. So um, when I ended those other two careers and they cycled down, then I applied that same energy to the, um, you know, the outdoor writer career. And I didn't slow down. I just kept working just as hard, Mm. but tried to stay, try to stay current and, and relevant and hunt as much as I can, you know, hunt and fish. So such a burden these days, what what a burden that is. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I, I hunt and fish. It works out to in, a good year if I'm in balance, probably 80 days wow. in the year. And then if I get out of balance with it, then I've done like a hundred days <laughs> in the year. And then, then it gets hard to keep on top of my deadlines and stuff like that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's awesome. I mean, so is that just like a week at a time, two weeks at a time here and there or, um, cause you've well, worked it, it out. That's- it can be, I could go hunting this evening i could go hunt rabbits this evening or coyotes this evening for instance Uh have a full day's worth of work and still get a hunt in interesting um and you actually just mentioned coyotes which i have been listening to your podcast and i was listening to the different coyote because you had three different coyote podcasts and i'm i love coyote hunting but i'm a little bit of a novice and i was learning a ton from that so if you guys love to coyote hunt definitely check out ballistic chronicles um, really good. Yeah. Ballistic Chronicles, there. the new, the new podcast. Yeah. Yeah. How to be a coyote hunter. I know that that little segment, my little mini series in the podcast 
is probably not going to be super popular until about November, uh-huh. December, when people start thinking about coyote hunting again. Mm-hmm. But I think a coyote hunter should hunt year round and just adapt the, um, the style and the methods and the techniques for the moment, you know, and we're coming up on some of the best coyote hunting of the year in the next couple months. Yeah. Well, and there's nothing really going on in July as far as hunting goes or fishing for that matter. You know, it's like, you know, there's the, the salmon aren't really running. Like you just need to kind of get out and have something to do. So. Yeah. I heard coyotes last night and I've got sheep now. I've got three American black bellies. They're hair sheep. They're not woolies. Uh-huh. And they're super cool animals. And, um, I got them on my place and I could hear coyotes out beyond them last night. And I was trying to sort out how I was going to get a gun if, <laughs> and, and a light to protect my animals. Exactly. <laughs> Fortunately, they went the other direction. Awesome. Yeah, and, and did those uh, did the sheep make it through the night okay, or were they kind of yeah. pounded? <laughs> I went out and checked them, and they were doing good. Okay, good. Glad, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Um, At some point, they're going to be old enough. They can defend themselves, you know, but they're, they're pretty young still. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, coyotes are, they're pretty ruthless. They'll take them out, so. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Um, so, and you also are an avid bird hunter, um, and I've heard that you like to hunt birds with a muzzleloader, uh, like turkeys, pheasant, you know, upland game, all that kind of stuff. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so. I've hunted turkeys with um, shot with muzzleloader shotgun and pheasants, chucker, quail, and I'm going to continue to do that. Just love that aspect of the sport, mm-hmm. and I'd really encourage people to, you know, adapt a, a gun to to be a muzzleloader shotgun mm-hmm. to, you know, for that. But especially turkeys, and the first time I killed a turkey with a muzzleloader it was it was a real rodeo and I think <laughs> I learned something from that uh, that if you know I've, if I'm using number six shot and I'm using black powder it might not be the best choice of a load mm-hmm. especially at, at the um, you know the ranges that we might use a modern shotgun and so I tend now to use like number four shot hmm. for turkey. And then you see, so you, you're getting a slower burn with your powder and maybe not the velocity that you would have with a regular shotgun with hmm. a modern shotgun. And so maybe you need more pellets on target or be closer yeah. And anyway, <laughs> through through some funny experiences, I've managed to get a few turkeys with a shotgun and I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> there you go. And well, that's an extra challenge too because um I found when the turkeys are when it's, you know, peak season, it's really not super difficult to hunt turkeys with a regular shotgun. Um and so there's always good to have the extra challenge, you know, uh of using a muzzleloader. And the challenge comes in with when you need to have that quick second shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's why, 
if you're going to do it, I recommend having a speed loader or two or three ready to go. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when we hunt with muzzlers, we really should be able to fire three rounds within a minute. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's what moving. you can achieve. You can, <laughs> you can fire three rounds in a minute when you have practiced. Mm-hmm. So my first turkey, I was at a dead run. Well, I was loading the gun at a dead run, trying to get close enough for, to get the second shot on it. And I had hit that turkey at less than 15 yards, just mm-hmm. plastered it. But it got up and, and took off. It was a huge gobbler. And I ended up shooting at it several times, loading, running, load, you know, running and loading at the same time. Mm-hmm. It was raining. I was falling down. <laughs> I grabbed the turkey, you know, where it got to in a creek uh-huh. and picked it up and it's spurring me. And, you know, this is a 20 pound bird. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> it was entertaining for the guys I was with. That is for sure. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> uh, that was not on the TV show, is it? No, no, oh, unfortunately. <laughs> we would have ruined the camera that day. I think it rained like three inches that day. Oh, man, that's crazy. <laughs> um, so if you're measuring the shot, because obviously you can't just put like, you know, like you have a normal bullet, how do you measure out the shot to know how much to put in there? Well, I there's a lot of resources online, but, um, you know, in the case of me running and mm-hmm. loading, I had speed loaders. Yeah. And they were all ready to go and I just they were all measured and I poured that down got you know rammed down the wad and poured in the shot poured you know got another wad in there still running and then um shot at the turkey again you know there you go and do you measure that by volume or by weight or is it like like how do you how do you go about measuring that out by weight by weight okay so, yeah mm-hmm. so now my my most recent muzzle loading shotgun is one that I picked up for two dollars mm-hmm. and this is a 28 gauge and wow two bucks um, doesn't it, get much better it than that made in the, yeah it was made in the 60s and um, got it from a friend of mine he says how much you got in your wallet and I looked at my wallet and I had two dollars so that's what I paid for <laughs> <laughs> but um, it doesn't have a half cock on oh, it. You know, interesting. You, you got, you got full cock right there. So you, you really, you got to cap it when you're ready to shoot. Yeah. Cause huh. you're not going to carry the cap underneath the hammer. And, uh, I killed a silver gray squirrel with it last fall. There you go. Yeah. And so that was, that was another muzzle loader win. Heck yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, um, there's one other thing I did want to uh, chat with you about, and uh, you actually mentioned that you wanted to bring this up. So uh, if people are wanting to get into the outdoor industry, if they're wanting to do what you do, um, where where do you point them? Okay, there's never been a better time to be involved in the outdoor industry. And I would say look at the outdoor industry as a whole, mm-hmm. not try to pigeonhole yourself into some spot into some dream position you know right away um just get involved and so i would say join oregon hunters association if you live in oregon join the mule deer foundation uh, join the safari club Mm -hmm. join the nra and then go to the shot show go to the safari club convention in las vegas and just 
pour yourself into this. Get get yourself in front of um, people, you know, places where you can meet and interact with a lot of people because really in this business, it's not what you know or how good you are. It's really who you know and who you meet along yeah. the way. And, and there's some really great relationships that you can make in this industry. Mm-hmm. Genuine people that will become lifelong friends and try that, you know, in some other industry, it just doesn't work that way as well. But in this industry, people are in it because they love it. Mm -hmm. They don't, they didn't get in this industry because they just needed a job. I mean, there's a few of those, but you sort those people out and you just try and stay away from them Mm -hmm. (laughs) later, you know, but this is just um, a great industry with a lot of opportunity and I didn't realize that when I was a younger person. I I saw it more as, you know, from a position of scarcity. You know, how do you get in? Yeah, yeah. How do you get into to this industry that I was so enamored with? Well, as I look at it now, I see, man, there's opportunity everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, perhaps now more than ever. And I actually, I... I really agree with what you're saying because when I first started working here at muzzleloaders.com, I was 16 and I was supposed to work here for two weeks and I was like a summer intern and uh, Jeff, who you had on your podcast recently, uh, decided to keep me on and I was sweeping floors and doing stuff and then I, you know, here I am six years later doing this kind of stuff. So it's like really (laughs) don't, don't pigeonhole yourself because any little foot that you can get in the door that's a foot in the door and you can make, make those relationships. And like you said, the people in the outdoor industry, and we talk about this all the time on the podcast, we're going to sound like a broken record, but the people in the outdoor <laughs> industry are just an absolute blast to be around. I haven't, I haven't yeah. hardly met anybody that was, um, that was difficult to be around. I mean, everybody loves to hunt. They love to fish. They're just genuine people. And so don't sell yourself short thinking I'm either going to be on a TV show right from the get go or nothing. You know, it's like, (laughs) get your foot in the door. Start. These companies are always hiring, you know, they're always looking for interns, things like that. So salespeople, you know, the, the hardest thing for a company to, to find is a salesperson who will actually do what they're supposed to do. And if you have any inkling that you can be a salesperson, Mm -hmm. then man, do that because you'll make the most money and you'll get to travel more than, than a lot of other people. Yeah. And, um, you know, you get, if you're a hard worker and you can get along with people, then you can do pretty much anything in today's world. Don't sell yourself short. You know, if you want to be in the outdoor industry, just go do it, you know, just get it done. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's about all the time we had for today, Gary. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention on, on a closing note? Yeah, get a muzzleloader kit and go build it and start <laughs> with that deer hunter. You know, I I think maybe the easiest kit for me is going to be this blunderbuss that I work on. Never would have thought I would have oh. owned a blunderbuss. And I'm just so excited. I'm going to hunt with that thing this fall. Heck yeah, absolutely. Get a kit. Um, get them while they last this year and last year have just been crazy with inventory. I think we have some in now, so definitely uh, check those out. Also, 
Don't forget to check out Gary Lewis Outdoors, the Ballistic Chronicles podcast, a uh, TV show on Amazon Prime. So uh, a lot of really good content from Gary. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Darren, you're an inspiration and you work for one of my favorite country, companies in the industry. And so keep doing what you're doing, man. I appreciate that. That's, that's high praise coming from you. So, <laughs> um, And if you guys want to check out the, any of the other episodes that we have of the Muzzleloaders podcast, we are available on all major platforms, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, all that stuff. You can also watch the video version on our YouTube channel. And uh, don't forget to subscribe. Let us know in the comments below if you have any shows that you would like us to do, um, any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. So, uh, Also, we are available on Facebook and Instagram. So give us a follow there. Shoot me a message. I would love to chat with you guys in the comments and otherwise. And uh, if you have any questions, give our customer service team a call. And we will see you guys on the next episode of the Muzzleloaders podcast.